0: Crippled Content Creations presents Disability After Dark, the podcast to shine a bright light on sex and disability, with your host Andrew Gerza.
1: Disability After Dark with Andrew Gerza, shining a bright light on sex and disability.
0: Content warning. The language, content, and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised. Hi, this is Dallas Steele, and I listen to Disability After Dark, the podcast to shine a bright light on sex and disability with Andrew Gerza. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by the worker owners of Come As You Are. Come As You Are has the peculiar distinction of being the world's only worker-owned cooperative sex shop. With feminist and anti-capitalist values, Come As You Are only carries sexuality products that they truly believe in at the lowest price possible. Get free shipping at www.comeasyouare.com using coupon code AFTERDARK. Let's shine a bright light on sex and disability together connect with me on Twitter at AndrewGurza, that's A-N-D-R-E-W-G-U-R-Z-A, and use the hashtag DisabilityAfterDark. Well, hello there. Thank you so much for coming back to this episode of Disability After Dark. I'm excited you're here, and I'm really excited to talk sex and disability with you. So, let's shine a bright light on sex and disability and get right to it. One of the things I love the most about this work is talking to people about sex and disability and not just me talking to you as an audience through my podcast and as as a captive audience, if you will, listening to my ramblings once a week around sexuality and disability. I love actually speaking to people as guests about sexuality and disability and the many, many linkages and many, many intersections around Sexuality and disability that there are, and hearing their experiences, which broadens my understanding of sex and disability. And for this episode, I got to do just that. I spoke with somebody who builds themselves as a Swiss army knife of digital media and publishing, Elena Leary. Just to give you a wee bit of background on Elena and the work she does, she's a Boston based creator and storyteller across all forms of media with a particular focus on intersectional feminism, social justice, LGBTQIA and disability rights, and diverse representation. First off, you guys, her press bio. To just read her press bio to you, I literally have to take a breath. Here it is, ready? (gasps) She has been posted in Teen Vogue, Seventeen, Mary Claire, Bustle, Everyday Feminism, Hello Giggles, Bust, The Establishment, Red Book, Good Housekeeping, Woman's Day, Brooklyn Magazine, After Ellen, Blog Her Culture, The World on Cheese, Ravishly, and the Femme Literary Magazine, and so much more, including Washington Post. That's pretty fucking awesome. Our conversation is a mishmash of discussions around diversity, disability, queerness. We talk about some of her personal experiences, and we talk about some of her articles so if you're not yet read, I would highly recommend you pause this podcast and you go to her website, ElenaLeary.com, and you find all her stuff and read it before you listen to our podcast. And then you can hear her talk about two particular articles that we really touch on. Um, one is about her childhood best friend, and one is about the significance of her purple cane All this stuff is weaved into a discussion of representation, disability, and queerness that I absolutely loved having. Without further ado, here's my interview with Elena Leary, right here on Disability After Dark. Elena, thank you so much for coming on Disability After Dark. How are you today?
1: I'm good. How are you?
0: Good. I'm so, so happy to have you here. I've been following... You're writing now for a while, um, and you just keep popping up on my news feed. So I was <laughs> like, I really wanted to have you on the show, and I'm so glad you could take the time today. Thanks so much.
1: Absolutely, it's an honor.
0: Oh, that's that's so sweet. Yay, <laughs> friendship. Um, so there were so many articles that you wrote. There was so much stuff that I wanted to talk to you about, but there was two articles that I really I read yesterday and I made some notes about those. Before we go into the articles, tell me in the audience kind of about you and who you are and what you do. I gave, I gave a little pre-intro of you before people heard the interview part, but let us know who you are.
1: Yeah, so I guess I kind of consider myself um, a Swiss army knife of publishing, and I am mostly an editor, a writer, and an activist, um, and I write a lot about LGBTQ issues and disability rights issues, as well as some other social justice related work.
0: Awesome. And yeah, you wear a lot of hats in the work you do, Definitely. Um, which I think is really cool because it's so hard to find. Well, I think when you're disabled and you are looking for work, you kind of have to create work for yourself. Right. And it sounds like, I mean, given your the breadth of stuff you've written about, it sounds like you're doing you're doing that without a problem which is awesome
1: yeah that's definitely something that I kept in mind while I was kind of going through my college experience and figuring out what it was that I wanted to do and what it was that I'm good at doing and I think I like to be good really good at the things that I do so I can't do everything but I do like to have a little bit of a wide range of skills
0: it's a good thing for sure I remember when I was in school I thought I was going to be this disability justice lawyer and I was going to be in the courtroom and doing all this stuff and I studied law thinking that that wasn't my career path and then I really quickly realized I was like but wait I like sitting and writing this stuff versus like talking about it right I don't want to be up in the middle of the courtroom being a lawyer I want to be behind the scenes writing stuff right so it's funny how quickly like your ideas of what you're going to do in the disability field change. Um, Was that something you, like, did you always know that you wanted to do disability stuff or like many others who kind of fall into this work, did you feel like you had to because of your lived experience?
1: I don't know. I mean, that's an interesting question. I like you at one point thought about being a lawyer and I wasn't thinking too much about what my focus would be, but I was thinking about being a lawyer Um, mostly for lower-income people who can't afford a lawyer, and I wasn't really sure what exactly my path would be. Um, But I really just kind of fell into social justice and feminist topics because it's something that's so near and dear to my heart, and disability is a part of that. And I think that when I'm writing work from an intersectional standpoint, it's impossible for me to leave it out because if we're talking about some other feminist topic like feminist dating or rape culture, those are things that uniquely affect the disability community and I, I feel amiss leaving that part of my experience out of things.
0: I then I think it's so so important some of the some of the stuff that you you bring forward is just especially with relation to intersectional feminism and intersectional disability stuff. Though, and the way what I, I don't, what I loved about your writing that I when I was looking over the notes yesterday and reading the stuff was how simple the stories you're telling are and how accessible they are to an audience. Um, I think when we write about disability stuff, typically they have to be, we feel like, and I've done this, I'm guilty of this too, you feel sometimes like you have to use big words, you have to use these big experiences that no one else has because you're disabled and you have to show the world something. But what I noticed in a lot of your writing is that you didn't do a lot of that. You just told the story, and it was so easy to connect myself to the the story you were telling because it wasn't there wasn't a lot of disability jargon. There wasn't a lot of um, over over explanation of what you were talking about. It was just stories, and and so is that kind of something you strive to do when you write?
1: It definitely is, and I think that. Um, a lot of that reason is just because I know a lot of people who have different kinds of learning disabilities and different learning differences, and I always want my work to be really accessible to a wide range of people. And I personally, you know, I've read some pretty heavy academic stuff in my work in undergrad and graduate school, and As great as all of that is, sometimes it's just as important to write it without all of that jargon and to just really explain it and bring it to light using examples in a way that makes it really easy for people to understand. And I think I really kind of came to that when I started following Everyday Feminism's work on the internet that, you know, I had read a lot of the classic feminist literature by Roxane Gay and Audre Lorde and Kimberly Crenshaw and all of those folks. And it was so dense. And then I loved how everyday feminism unpacked that in a way that was so easy to understand. And I thought, I want to emulate that kind of style. I want people to really be able to read my work and just walk away from it, knowing what I mean.
0: Yeah, no, without, without having to think about. I mean, sometimes when I write stuff around queerness and disability, I have to lay out some of the disability stuff first. Mm-hmm. But I try really hard to make it really accessible, and and I think that's kind of like a, just the piece that I was thinking about when I when I mentioned that just now was the um, the my childhood best friend broke my heart years later. She's the perfect double date. Um, it just it was just so simple. The story was so simple, and so touching and so heartbreaking almost I mean I read that yesterday and I was like oh my god that's my life (laughs) (laughs) because it literally has happened to me so many times and and I kind of want to now kind of weave into that story a bit and talk to you a little bit about that if that's okay um let me just pull it up so some of the notes that I have for that story um you mentioned in the story that you came out at 13 which I came out at 15. And that was not easy for me. So I can't imagine coming out two years earlier. Can you elaborate on that experience?
1: Yeah, so I actually, I came out in middle school. So for me, that was around seventh grade. And it really started by me talking to my close friends and to my dad about it. And Then one day I just decided I was going to tell everyone and at the time the internet was such a big tool for middle schoolers to spread what they were thinking and feeling and this was in the MySpace days before Facebook had really gained any traction so it was easy for me to just kind of update my status and let everyone know that I was coming out And within days, everybody had spread the word to somebody else who hadn't already seen it themselves. And it was kind of scary. I really think that in some ways I was unprepared for it, but in other ways, I really just felt, you know what, I may be unprepared for the consequences, but I'm going to continue to be queer for the rest of my life. And I kind of want to get used to it and be honest about it as early as I can.
0: Totally. Um... I'm wondering, did you come out as queer at 13, or did, were you like, I'm going to be... Did you have another label for yourself? Like, when I came out, I was gay, and I didn't understand the complexity of queer, so I kind of clung to gay as my label. Um, But you mentioned that you came out as queer. Was there another label that you used before that, or or was that always what you wanted to be seen as?
1: I think the first time I came out, I came out as gay and essentially at the time believed that I was only attracted to women at the time, and um, at some point later I came out as bisexual, and then it wasn't until I learned about the term queer and felt that it was a little bit more encompassing of different gender identities that I switched over to using that, at least in circles where people understand what it means.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I I mean, I'm, I'm only just, I mean, I've been attracted to men my whole life and I came out as gay at 15 but I'm only just starting to kind of be comfortable with the term queer and learning in social justice circles and and disability circles and and LGBTQ circles just learning how comfortable that word is now for me um and I of course pair it with cripple because I like to be provocative and make, (laughs) make people like sit up and take notice um so when you Came out at 13, which I still think is, like, so awesome because that very rarely happened when I was coming out. Like, 17 years ago now, when I came out at 15, it was a big deal to come out that young. So, that's awesome. Um, Did you feel that your disability played a role in your initial coming out?
1: It's interesting that you say that because I feel that at the time I was really... Not out about being disabled, which, you know, at the time I didn't use any mobility aids and I wasn't enrolled in special education at the time. So it was really easy for me to hide the fact that I was disabled. And I think that as a kid, knowing that I was disabled and queer before even coming out as queer there was a lot of shame attached to both identities. And there was a lot of, you know, is this something that I want people to know about me? Is this something that I should be proud of? And because of the friends that I kept and the people that I met, it felt easier to come out as gay in middle school, just because I had more friends who felt that they could potentially be gay at that age than I had friends who were disabled in any way. Yeah, And I think that You know, a part of me really just wanted to be my full self, but I wasn't there yet self image wise or confidence wise that really, truly, I wanted to be able to be my full self with everyone and be honest, but I just wasn't, I wasn't ready for it.
0: Yeah, I don't blame you. I think I have been out as queer and disabled as part of my work and part of who I am for years now. And I got to say, I'm not even there yet. Sometimes (laughs) It, it takes a lot of work to be there and to be okay with being there. Um, now I love, I love the story of you and your best friend because I fall in love with my friends all the time. (laughs) That's kind of my MO. I literally, I can think of like five people that I would, that I'm friends with now, but that I fell in love with first because I mean, I I love the idea of that. I could fall that I could love someone and just maybe they could love me back. Do you, is that kind of a feeling that you have yourself like, do you fall hard and fast for your friends generally?
1: I would say it depends on the friend. <laughs> um, I definitely did with my childhood best friend who I talk about in the piece. You know, I We are still friends now, and I'm now realizing that that's not the kind of relationship that we should have and not the right relationship, but at the time I really did feel like... She was my soulmate and like there was no one else who could ever possibly understand me at that level. And after that, I did have several other friends who I felt that way about, including my current girlfriend slash partner who originally was my best friend and who I fell in love with. And I immediately thought, oh, shit, is this happening again? I'm not going to let this happen again. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. It's, I mean, it's such, a, it happens to me little, like almost, <laughs> when, it, when, I, when I start to really get to know somebody, especially as a queer person, I think we want to be, as a queer disabled person who's othered in so many kind of ways, we want to, and we crave, at least I do, I crave that, that somebody else might want me to, so I feel sometimes like I have to create these relationships that don't necessarily exist and then I have to, on top of creating the relationship, I have to break my own heart too. Does that is that something that you're experiencing? Like, do you, do you, have you ever had that that thing where somebody they don't ever tell you that they don't want to hang out with you, but they all of a sudden just disappear and they ghost, and then you're left to like, oh, I guess we aren't a thing anymore. So I better just move on and mourn that loss of my own.
1: Yeah, I've definitely had that with friendships and kind of relationship type of situations um i haven't had very many long-term or serious or even really adult relationships but i have felt that really with friends a lot of the time that you feel really close to someone and that you really want to get to know them and they kind of feel like they might be one of your soulmates in a platonic way and you want to keep them in your life, and they might not feel the same way, and you kind of just feel a little lost afterward.
0: You're lost, and I think you're lost because when it comes to disability and relationship, um, I think just generally we are not given the tools or enough tools to deal with somebody saying, I can't deal with this. Like, right. Or, or, uh, and the other person on the other end of it, too, isn't given any tools to deal with what happens when. The person with a disability says, I like you. Right. Um, so I, I just, I remember the, in reading your piece, that's one of the things that really struck me was um, like, wow, how many times have I had to move on from somebody without actually being given any, any closure and how tough that's been for me. Right. I'm, I'm 33 now, almost almost 33. And like that stuff happens to me all the time because people don't know how to say I don't want to do this. People, people think because we're disabled that they have to be politically correct all the time. And part of that means not saying what they really feel.
1: That's such a good point.
0: And, you know, I think part of the reason why they, they don't want to say anything is because we've been taught through ableism that we are not supposed to offend the disabled person. So even if the disabled person is not somebody we want to spend time with, We can't say that because it's not appropriate to let the disabled person down.
1: Right. Yeah, I've actually had that experience from both sides as friends with people that it can be so hard because you... I personally know what it's like to be the disabled person who somebody doesn't want to hang out with or who... You know, they just don't feel comfortable hanging out with me, not because of my disability, but just because we didn't click. And it can be so hard when you're on the other end of that to try to decide, you know, I really don't want to offend this person and I really don't want to be that jerk because I know what it feels like. But at the same time, you don't want to fake anything for someone and you don't want anyone to fake it for you. You know, I don't want to find out that my friends don't really like me. They just pity me.
0: Yeah, and and I I find that in a lot of queer, not just queer, but in a lot of my experiences with queer relationships, or queer hookups or fuck buddies or whatever it is that I engage in, um, I find that nobody wants to say. Nobody ha- wants to say I don't want to. I don't think we'll do this again right. because it's too scary for them to let down the disabled guy, and it, I think it hurts more when you're not let down properly. So. Anybody who's listening, who, <laughs> who, ha- who was pursued by a disabled person and maybe didn't feel the same way, have the guts to let them down. It's okay. It's gonna hurt, but it's gonna hurt a lot less than you not telling them at all.
1: Definitely, I think that.
0: <laughs> that's my PSA for the day. Um, <laughs> and so, I also noted here in my notes. Do you ever feel in your relationships of any sort, whether they be friendships, romantic relationships, platonic things, do you ever feel like you are, quote, too much?
1: That's actually a really good point. Um, I assume that by too much, you might mean too radical or even too much work sometimes. And that is definitely something I think about. I'm extremely fortunate in the fact that I have had the chance to build up a community of folks who are on the LGBTQ spectrum and people who have various disabilities, physical and learning. And because of that, I've been really lucky that, you know, I'm really not the only person in our group who is too much, if that's even really such a thing. Um, I'm not the only person who has to ask about accommodations or accessibility when planning an event. I'm not the only person who has to ask if it's okay to bring my same-sex significant other to a party because, of course, it's okay because my friend will be bringing his boyfriend and, you know, we're all going to be there and queer together. And I'm lucky that that is the case for me. Um, Obviously, it hasn't always been that way. I just sort of fell into that in college and beyond when you have a little bit more time and a lot more people to choose from rather than just who you're paired with in middle or high school. Um, but I definitely have felt that way in the past that sometimes you can feel like you're too much when you're the one person who's going through coming out or trying to deal with whether or not you should hide who you are. And I'm kind of a funky, radical person just in general besides being, um queer and being disabled, you know, I, I just am a funky person. I dress funky. I say what I'm thinking. I'm very radical in my politics and my beliefs. And I'm sure that stuff is too much for some people. I probably am the kind of person that people either love or hate, which is fine. I'd rather know up front that someone doesn't want to hang out with me because of the rainbow socks or the tiny hats.
0: <laughs> I think that your, your style is awesome. I. I <laughs> Because I did my I did my research on you before we we chatted, and I was like, "Oh my god, she's she's so cool! Why can't we live closer? We, we'd be we we would get along quite well, definitely." Um, because you're just stylish that way, and I think when you're disabled, finding a style and finding something that's a bit radical, um, it doesn't always happen, but I think when you start embracing that, you just have a lot more fun with it.
1: Yeah, definitely, and I think that you know I have a lot of friends who have disabilities that aren't funky, and that's just because that's who they are. You know, everybody is different, but I was just born funky. I mean, I really feel that the way that I dress is not just an expression. It's really just a part of who I am that's completely attached to me in the way that, you know, my favorite food is attached to me or my inability to smell is attached to me or my walking with a cane is attached to me. It's just a part of who I am that has to be accepted by people who meet me
0: yeah it ha- well it is what it is so i mean if they don't accept it and they don't accept you and then and then why are we even you know talking if you don't, if if you can't accept me why are we even having a conversation right. so i think i think that the fact that you but I, I also think it's really cool that you have put it in such a public sphere now because like I've, I looked at your portfolio of writing, you've done it. You've been all over the place talking about this stuff. <laughs> and I just think it's so important to see that representation. Um, You also, I don't have the notes for it, but we talked before I hit record about another piece you wrote about putting disabled characters out there. Can you tell us a bit about that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that, Having disabled characters in fiction is incredibly important, and I've written a little bit about some of the examples of times that disabled characters have really made a positive or a negative impact on me. Um, you know, me before you being the worst example of what you could possibly do.
0: <laughs> I mean, right? I mean, how much, like, how <laughs> bad does it have to get that character is so two dimensional, and that character is not even not even real exactly. the character the way the way that character was written was like did you did you do your research on disability because if you did you'd see that character's wrong
1: right exactly and I think there's a really there is a real important place in the world to show disabled characters especially with acquired disabilities dealing with what it's like to be disabled and dealing with that struggle of accustoming to a new reality and to you know, in accessibility and accommodations. But I think there's a better way to do it. I think there's a way to do it that kind of shows the person, you know, accepting and embracing it as a part of themselves. Because all over the world, I truly believe people are generally accustomed, becoming accustomed to new realities on the daily. You know, if you lose a loved one, or you move, or you go across the country to go to a college. Those are all big changes. That...
0: Or, you know, Trump becomes president oh, and yes. <laughs> the world falls apart. That right.
1: <laughs> It's not I mean... something you can always choose.
0: Yeah. And so, I mean, I think these characters need to be so much more fleshed out than they are. And I think the the stuff you talk about in trying to create these characters is so so important and I really appreciate that discussion I, I'd love to have you on an episode again later when we talk when I want to talk about like characterizations of disability I'm, I'm definitely going to hit you up for some definitely. ideas around that for sure um, so I want to go back to the, art of the childhood best friend article how did that experience of kind of falling in love and then breaking up with and then reacquainting with that friend how did that experience change your view of love, friendship, and I have relationships here, but I'm going to change it to disability.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that it really did change how I felt about love because when it was when I was going through it at 13, I remember talking to my dad and I asked him, do you think that people can really fall in love at the age that I am? And he kind of took a few moments to think about it. And he thought back to his childhood love, his childhood friend who he fell in love with. And he said, you know, even though we were 13, that was real love. And even though it didn't work out, I really did love her. And I still, a part of me still does. And I was kind of surprised because, you know, at the time, my dad was like 50. And here he was admitting to me that, his childhood love at 13 was real. And that was something I'd never heard from an adult before. And I think obviously my views have changed. You know, at the time I felt like we were soulmates that were destined to be together. And I kind of realized through not ending up together and ending up with different people that we were always meant to be friends and I think that that's one of those complicated things that people don't realize until they kind of grow up and grow into what kind of relationships they want. And you might think that just because you really click with someone as a friend and you have those feelings that you would want to marry them. But I think that a lot of my friends are fantastic and attractive and beautiful inside and out, but I don't want to marry all of them. And now that I'm older, I can see the ways in which... We are mismatched for one another long term, but I think it has changed my view of love and it has, I'm not really sure if it has shaped my view of disability. I mean, this childhood friend has been with me since I was three, so she saw me through my younger years of not being able to ride a bike and, you know, struggling to keep up with the kids on the playground and... She saw me through my special education and my occupational therapy. And now, you know, when we go out, I'm walking with a cane and people stare and she like flips them off for me. And it's fantastic because I think you just get something so special out of having someone by your side and seeing you through that experience. And when you come to it with a friend who maybe has never had a disabled friend before and you're the first one it's a little bit more jarring because they're like, oh, well, I've I've never been friends with a disabled person before. How do I not offend them? And what's the right thing to say?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's a power, too, in being someone's first disabled friend. I've been someone's first disabled friend a bunch of times. And it's really interesting to see them grow from when you first meet them as their friend to, like, a year down the line once they've helped you with certain things, or you've asked for help with this, or they, you know, it's really interesting to see how those those people who never had a disabled friend, all of a sudden really quickly learn that this is what Andrew needs, so let me help him, or this is what Elena needs, so let me help her, and they they just figure it out, because that's part of what the friendship is.
1: Right, exactly.
0: Um, I just, I think that piece just really spoke to me, and I'm really, really glad that you wrote it, so... Thanks, thanks so much for writing that piece. It was awesome.
1: It's good to hear that.
0: It was. It really, really spoke to me as somebody who has fallen in love with, like I said, with their friends all the time.
1: I think it's a very common experience, no matter what your gender identity is. Almost everyone I know has done it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it happens to everybody, but I think with, with respect to disability, it can happen more because, again, we are forced to kind of try on our own and so it feels good to fall for somebody even if you know even if you know it's not going to be necessarily reciprocated i always felt like i had to try because what if this thing could turn into something and i have to try so even if i was overbearing and annoying and the person wasn't into it i always thought well okay i'm still going to i'm still going to try because if i don't try i might, i might never find somebody so good- it's really Nice to know that um, that even though romantically things didn't go anywhere, the friendship is still strong. Exactly. And I think having friends as a disabled person just generally, friends who are willing to go through all that stuff with you and, and experience the OT, the occupational therapy, and the all that stuff when we're young, to have somebody learn that when we're kids is a big deal.
1: Definitely. It, does, it definitely does shape us
0: without question. I want to go to another piece you wrote about your purple cane. <laughs> you talk you talk about a lot of things and I jot down a few notes. Um in the piece you tell you talk about the first time you understood yourself as being disabled. Can you elaborate on that for me?
1: Yeah, you're talking about the beginning at the balance beam setting. That's right. Yeah, so I still remember this, even though it was probably one of my youngest memories because I was in preschool, so I must have been three or four at the time, and I don't remember a lot about preschool other than that it was fun and there was a lot of snacks, but I remember Mm -hmm. that on Balance Beam Day, everybody seemed like they could cross the Balance Beam with ease, and you know looking back it was probably just a couple inches off the ground and wood and not that scary but it was so hard for me as somebody who struggles with walking and standing and balancing that when i tried to cross it i couldn't do it i couldn't stay on the beam and i would fall off and i would lose my balance and I really just couldn't do the one foot in front of the other thing. And I still can't. I mean, if somebody pulls me over for a a potential DUI, they're going to think I'm drunk because I can't do the one foot in front of the other thing without holding onto a wall. Um, And I just remember thinking I was different at the time that every other kid in the class could just cross the balance beam and I couldn't do it. And I wondered why. And at the time, you know we hadn't really talked about that in my family. It wasn't something that we knew was going on. So it was kind of a question of like, what's happening here and what does this mean? And will I be able to do this someday soon?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, I remember the first time that I realized that I was disabled, if I really think back, I was about probably in like pre-K and I had to sit, all the kids were sitting in a circle um, for, like, story time or whatever it was. And they were all sitting on the floor cross-legged. I couldn't do that. I had to sit in a big, one of those big chairs, those big wooden chairs that somebody makes mm-hmm. for a disabled kid from the 80s. It's, like, totally, like, somebody made it in a wood shop. Right. <laughs> and made it for me. And I remember sitting in this chair thinking, why can't I sit on the floor with the other kids? But also being the precocious annoying little child that i was because i thought i was i thought i was like the bee's knees (laughs) i remember being like i'm the king i'm awesome because i get to be above all of you in this this chair but i also remember being like oh i'm different from the other kids and i'm different from from them
1: yeah i think it's an experience that everybody has and you know, I, every person that I've talked to has that experience, whether it's a physical or learning or, you know, a facial difference. Everybody has that moment when they realize that their body or their mind doesn't work in the same way. And it's so interesting how sometimes it happens young and other times it doesn't happen until the person is, you know, in elementary school or even in high school.
0: And how sometimes I think, too, it might happen repeatedly like there are many times when you first understand yourself as being different like when you come out as being queer and disabled or you come out as being queer and then later you have to come out as being queer and something else right. like queer and a person of color or queer and a person with disabilities I think those moments always stay with us and I mean I, like do you like you, you talk about in the last article that you came out kind of at thirteen, kind of on the on ICQ or MySpace. Does was there like an emotional response for you that you can remember when when you had to bring those two worlds together?
1: When I was bringing together being queer and disabled. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I came out pretty young as being queer, and in contrast to that, I was always disabled, but I kind of hid it in my middle and high school years because I didn't want kids to think that I was different and see it as fodder to be jerks. And um, I guess it was really not until college that I kind of felt like I could come out as both. And I think it was a really emotional experience for me because I think most people who are a part of a marginalized community and it's not fully obvious, and it's something you might be able to hide. A lot of the times we have this moment at the beginning where we're kind of like on the periphery and we're acting as allies to that community and we're acting as if we support the community but we're not a part of it. And it can feel so good and so relieving to say, no, I'm actually a part of this community and to be okay with that. And I remember when I first started talking about it with my friends, many of whom have different disabilities, that I was also disabled. I just felt like so relieved that I was finally sharing all of myself with people who cared about me. It was very, very liberating.
0: Yeah, I think the initial idea of like coming out and saying, okay, these are my two worlds is liberating for me. Um, It was liberating. I think, but it also was like, oh, it's not going to be so easy to, like, just be queer and disabled when you start immersing yourself in the community that doesn't have context for your disability, at least in my case, as a queer man. The social standards of what a queer man is supposed to be are so much, are so, there's so much pressure. to be a certain way and to act a certain way and the social standards, especially when we're young are so bigger than, than they actually really are. Do you, how do you feel about all the, the social pressures that you may have had to deal with when you were younger?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that social pressure is kind of what kept me from coming out in either sense at first, because I feel like there are certain standards that are placed on people that The norm is to be straight and cisgender and white and thin and able-bodied. And if you're not those things, that you are different in some way that's marked from everybody else. And I feel like that social pressure definitely affected me. And even in coming out as queer but not having talked about my disability much publicly... I felt like there was a lot of pressure on me that I was already marginalized because I was queer and that I should just kind of hide anything else that was going on and stick to that because it was already difficult to deal with and it was already something that marked me as other to people. And I was wondering if I could really be both because a lot of times we don't see intersectionality in the very, very few media representations we do see, period. You know, you're going to see some gay women rarely on TV or in movies or in books. And when you do, they're usually not also disabled. So I guess some part of me was like, can I really even be both? Like, I've never seen a gay woman walking with a cane or a gay woman using a wheelchair or a gay woman using a hearing aid. Like, very rarely. Every once in a while I've seen it. I think there's one minor character on the L word who's a love interest that's deaf and a lesbian, but very rarely is there anyone else.
0: It was was like Marley Matlin's character for like a a hot second was like in a really steamy relationship with one of them. I can't remember which one, but I I loved that scene being like, yes, good. Awesome. But then, then like an episode later, she was not there anymore. Right. So, um, I think that's why when you talk about the characters you want to create in your work, I think that's why they're so critical because to have a main character, whether we're writing it for the screen or for a book or for a play, to have a main character who's like, wait, I have seven intersections, let's talk about each of them, is, so, is something that not, that as queer, disabled people we never see. So I think what you're doing is really, really, really awesome.
1: I think it's so important too for people who have never come upon that before. I mean, I always think back to that day in my fiction workshop when I let the class read my piece and it was intended as a romance piece. I challenged myself to write a straight romance between a guy and a girl, just regular cisgender folks who had feelings for each other and they were trying to figure out if they should date. And she rolls in in her wheelchair with her service dog and everybody... Could not let go of the damn wheelchair. They were like, "Why is she disabled? Where's the tragic accident? Was he there for the tragic accident? Is that why she loves him?" I'm like, the wheelchair isn't a part of the story. It's like, just there. She, yeah. a wheelchair user who wants to date her best friend. Like, the dating is the story.
0: And I, I mean, I think I really wish that that you had had the chance to record that moment, right? So we we could have heard like the people's honest, genuine reactions to, well, what happened to him? So that people can see that these questions people have and these ableist assumptions are not even conscious sometimes. People just assume that it's supposed to be that way.
1: Exactly. It's because we don't have enough representation, which is like what I realized in that moment is that we don't and that we need more.
0: And so how did... I mean it sounds like you took some, some, some classes to get your writing to the to where it is. But how did when did when were you like, I wanna write about this stuff, this is what it is.
1: I guess I would say I've always wanted to be a writer. I mean I've bounced back and forth between different career options because I've always been so interested in helping people and in being a part of like social justice and social change work. But I've always been drawn to fiction and to writing stories ever since I was little. And, you know, it just kind of naturally happened that my characters would be LGBTQ or disabled in some way because it was my lived experience. So they just kind of came out on the page like that without me even having to think about it. And it was really in college that I started trying to take some specific workshops and some specific classes in writing so that I could hopefully pursue it as a career and possibly someday down the line publish some of my own fiction and some of my own novels. And, you know, it was at that time that I was kind of realizing that I wanted to be very intentional about the kind of characters I was bringing into the world because there are already so many stories that aren't diverse and aren't intersectional. And I felt that it made no sense for mine to add to that lack of representation when that's not what I see in my everyday life.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think when we write, and I, I don't write a lot of fiction, so I can't speak directly to that. But when I write, even when I write my blogs, sometimes when you write a blog, you you I, you embellish a bit of the experience to make it like a really cool piece Mm -hmm. And I find sometimes the character of Andrew that I create isn't necessarily the character, like, isn't necessarily the the Andrew that had the thing happen to him. But to know, like, I immediately think of when I'm writing stuff that isn't necessarily about my queerness, the queerness is implied. Right. It's there. And I don't even, like, just like you, I don't even think about it. It's just there. And I hope the audience can pick up on that without it being... Like erased.
1: Right. I think that kind of stuff is always a part of what I'm writing. And it's funny because I wrote a piece, an essay for 17 last year about how I wear such crazy, funky clothing and how people have judged me for wearing such strange clothing and how they make assumptions about it. And I mentioned in passing in the piece that people assume that I'm LGBTQ because. I dress this way, but I never addressed that concern in the piece. I never said, yes, I am gay, but that's not why I dress this way. I just simply did not include it. And a few people who read it actually wrote comments saying, why does she think it's so bad to be gay? Like, it's not a bad thing if people thought you were gay based on how you dress. And I found that so interesting because I am and I'm not upset about the fact that they thought I was gay. I just found it interesting that they did.
0: And I mean, I just think that, I also think that in our call-out culture right now, if you don't, if you, (laughs) I find when I blog, I refer to myself a lot as a queer cripple, Mm -hmm. and I've been shot down. I wrote an article, I want to say maybe a month a bit ago, about four things you should never say to a queer cripple before, during, or after sex, (laughs) and I, I use the term queer cripple in the article, and... I put down four things that I thought were very important that everybody should know not to say to me if we're going to have sex. And so (laughs) instead of reading what I wrote, everybody said, Why did you, HuffPost, why did you let him use the words queer cripple? How dare you? That's so offensive. And HuffPost actually had to come out with a statement on the Facebook page that was like, The author chose this language. We support him. Right. Just how quickly people will jump to you to assume that if you don't, if you don't conform your identity to what people want, even in your writing, that it's not taken as seriously.
1: That's so true. It's very qu- It's very quick for people to assume the worst if you don't take the time to explain that. And it kind of made me wonder why I should have to say that I'm queer in a piece that was really only about my fashion sense. You know, I don't want. I I don't always have to include it, and in. I didn't think it was relevant. But it made me realize that people were getting something out of that paragraph that I hadn't intended.
0: And I mean, they're taking it to like such a such an unnecessary extreme. Like, why why is she upset? Well, do you know she's upset? Have you asked her? Like, right? Why would you assume that she's? Again, I think without them realizing it, when they said that to you, there there's a level of ableism there that they don't even that that is so. Um, that is so ingrained in our culture that didn't even realize it was a thing.
1: Right, exactly.
0: Which is just really sad, actually. Um, so in the, speaking of labels and, and things, and talking about sexiness and disability, you mentioned in the Purple Cane piece, and that's just what I have in my notes because I was jotting them down quickly, so that the title for anybody looking for it is not, <laughs> it's not Purple Cane. What is the title again?
1: I think it's Learning to Love My Purple Sparkly Cane.
0: That's right, yes, so yeah, if you're looking for that, you should read all of the writing, but there's a longer title than Purple cane, but in the in that piece, you talk about that you didn't want to be the girl with the cane um uh, and the cane has kind of become your kind of become your trademark now. um how do you feel about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think. That really comes back to a mix of internalized ableism and who I saw myself as. And I talk in the essay a little bit about how people have defined me by the way that I dress for a long time, because that's something I've always, I've dressed funky for a number of years, if not forever. And people immediately identify me that way because there aren't many other people who dress funky on a regular basis, so I'll often get stopped and asked if I'm going to be in a local theater production. I've had people run up to me in the parking lot of Walmart and ask to take a selfie with me. Um, After the uh, Living Doll episode of, uh, I think it was My Strange Addiction came out, a lot of strangers asked me if I was trying to be a living doll, (laughs) which I was not. Um, But... I was so used to being identified by my fashion sense and people immediately noticing my hair or my hats or my skirts or my socks that I didn't know how I would feel if the first thing people saw was my mobility aid because I was very well aware of the fact that people see a mobility aid usually before they see a person and sometimes they literally never see the person. They just refer to you as the wheelchair or, you know that deaf girl, like they don't see a person, they see an assistive device or a service dog and make assumptions about the person. And I guess I was struggling with the fact that I would start being labeled that way and that people would make new assumptions about me. And right after I started using it, I realized that first of all, I need it. So who cares? (laughs) Um, It made my life so much better. And I also started to realize that, you know, people make assumptions about me, no matter what. And people are always going to do that. And if they're going to do that, I might as well still be funky and have a funky cane and have people make assumptions about me based on that, because there's nothing I can really do to stop them from making assumptions and I suppose I could take the route of being as plain as possible with a plain cane and just try to stay out of people's way so that they might see me in passing and think, why does that young girl need a cane? And then it would exit their minds and they would forget all about it because I'm wearing jeans and a t-shirt. But I realized that if I'm going to make a statement, I want to make the statement that I want to make, which is that disabled people are fun and funky and alternative when we want to be and that we don't need to hide and that our mobility aids are beautiful and sexy and should be noticed and that they are a part of us without being the only important thing about us.
0: Totally. There was so much stuff there. (laughs) I'm just going to let that statement speak for itself. But I also love that you've said funky like 27 million times (laughs) in the podcast so far. I love that you've kind of like made funkiness part of your brand, um, which I think is really cool.
1: Yeah, I think people see certain aspects of what I wear. I mean, a lot of people have told me they can't see glitter without thinking of me, so...
0: (laughs) Sometimes they can't see glitter without thinking of me either,
1: Right? It's such a queer thing, too. I didn't know glitter had a queer history. And when I found out about it, I was like, oh, perfect. It's like the stars have aligned.
0: Yeah, the glittery stars have aligned (laughs) just for you. Um... I'm looking at your interview with with our mutual friend Carrie Wade, who is one of my like literary heroes, and makes me like gush with joy um, every time. No. Every time I think about her, because she she Carrie, if you're listening, we love you. Yeah, um, you're just the best. So I'm looking at you the 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 interview she did with you, and I'm also noticing your age. I didn't realize you were only 24. Yes, I am. Wow, that makes, first of all, that makes me feel ancient. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm a good nine years older than you. But I, also...
1: <laughs> I also look 16, if that makes it any more difficult.
0: <laughs> I like about 12, it's fine. So, <laughs> I remember going to a bar with a friend a few years ago, and we were at, a, just a, a little brief aside here, we're at a bar with, a. I was at a bar with a friend, and, um... The bartender comes up to both of us and goes, Are you guys supposed to be here? And we're like, Yeah, we're in our late twenties. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you and Carrie talk a little bit about your experiences of um of dating somebody who's able bodied. How what can you share about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel like That's something that a lot of people with disabilities go through, you know, a lot of times it's either assumed that we won't date anyone, or that if we do date someone, we're going to want to date someone else who's disabled, and a lot of times maybe even someone who has the same disability, depending on how rare your condition is and whether or not there is someone else you can date with the same disability in your, like, tri-country area or whatever. Um, But I hear that a lot, you know, like, people assume that wheelchair users date each other and that, you know, people with mobility aids date each other, that people in the deaf community date each other. And I think it's fairly common for disabled people to not date someone else who's disabled just simply because we met an abled partner that we love and that we really like being with and who we really feel that we belong with and connect with. and it leads to a lot of other weird assumptions, you know, I'm sure, that a lot of able-bodied people who choose to be in relationships with disabled people get that, like, well, aren't you going to have to take care of them? And don't you care that they can't do this or that they can't do that? And there's a lot of assumptions about what we can and can't do physically and what we can and can't do romantically and sexually that really play into that. And I think that, When you're dating an able-bodied partner, it's just kind of like when you're dating someone, anyone who doesn't have your marginalized identity. That doesn't always happen with LGBTQ relationships because a lot of times, you know, you're gay and the other person is gay and it just works out. You're both gay. That's, it works out because you are gay. (laughs) If you weren't, it wouldn't. But with a lot of other, you know, interracial couples or couples where one person is transgender, there's... Kind of going through that experience of we do lead different lives and we are marginalized in different ways and I think sometimes there is a bit of more discussion about privilege and oppression and social justice that happens. I know at least for me that kind of stuff comes up all the time. You know, talking about what ableism means um, and talking about the different marginalizations that my partner and I don't share.
0: And I think I'm I'm just looking at the the photos of you and your partner together, which are just adorable. <laughs> um, they're just they're so awesome. Uh, the the book photo is my favorite one so far. Uh-huh. Um, I just think that being able to go through that stuff together and grow together, because I'm sure being with a with a partner who's not disabled is helping you to to kind of work through your own internalized ableism.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it's. I think it's helpful to have a non-disabled partner, especially if that person is treating you the way they should be, which my partner is. I'm sure there are plenty of disabled people who are with an ableist partner, and that's definitely not good for their mental health. But I think if your partner is supportive and reminds you that you are worthy and great the way you are, it can be really good for your self-consciousness and your confidence and your internalized ableism, because the person reminds you that you don't need to be able to do everything. And I think even in having a partner without disabilities, you know, there are so many things that I do better than she does or that she does better than me, and it doesn't matter. The disability isn't the reason why one person's better at some things than others. It's just, like, people are different, and people like different things and are good at different things, and I feel like that's a natural part of any relationship, and it kind of gets pronounced when you have a disability because you're used to feeling like you're the burden and you're the person who can't do things. And when you're with a partner who supports you in the right way you realize that no everybody can't do certain things not everybody can do everything and that's okay and that's perfectly fine
0: and i think too when you're with an able-bodied partner no, i i much like you um well not exactly like you but i i've never been in a long-term relationship so you were saying earlier that you haven't been in many of them so when i am with a partner say for one night or we hook up a few times, you realize that ableism is so insipid, and it's so like it's it's really hard to see ableism as this this thing that is like, oh my God, that's ableism, and you're being super ableist, and I'm gonna I'm gonna call you out right now. When you're with somebody that you that's never experienced disability, you see how quickly. It can like permeate someone's thought of you without them even realizing it without you realizing it too, because you w- I feel like a lot of the times you want to be able to connect with the person and, and be comfortable. but also you don't want them to be able to. And so I feel sometimes with partners that I've been with, finding a space where I can gently call them into the, the experience I'm having and say like, hey, maybe we, we shouldn't say that's tough.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think I'm in a lucky position, I guess, if you want to call it that, that my partner is marginalized in ways that I'm not as well. So even though she's not disabled, she has other marginalizations that I don't share. And I think between that and the fact that she's aware of intersectional feminism and supports it, it works out better because I don't feel like I'm introducing these concepts to someone who has no experience with them but i have had interactions with friends who haven't or you know you know just peers who haven't had any experience being marginalized and it's hard to call someone in and be like well this is what ableism is and you know by saying that you don't care whether we go to an accessible venue you're participating or just you know like whatever small thing it might be that day, assuming that the person only wants to date disabled partners, you know, assuming that they can't have sex, like any of these small everyday examples, leaning down to talk to someone in a wheelchair or patting their head or something, for God's sake, um, small everyday examples that happen all the time, people sometimes need to be made aware and it can be hard to play the role of educator and have to explain that stuff.
0: I mean, it's especially hard if you're going to, like, if you have to educate and then be like, so, want to go back to my place and have sex? <laughs> like, like, that's always real. like, that's happened to me a bunch of times where I'll meet somebody online or at a bar and they'll say something super ableist. And I'll be like, but you're really hot, though. I don't know how I'm supposed to, like, <laughs> how am I supposed to do this now? I can't let, I can't let that lie. But I also want to sleep with you. Why? <laughs> So I've definitely, I've definitely been there a couple times. Um, I just love what you're doing, and I love all the stuff you put out in the world. It's so, so important, and I, I just appreciate what you do so much. Um, how can the audience, listening audience, get a hold of you?
1: The audience can find my website, which is elenaleary.com. So A-L-A-I-N-A-L-E-A-R-Y.com. I also... I'm on Twitter at Elena's Keys, so A L A I N A S K E Y S. So at Elena's Keys. And I'm also on Instagram with the same username as my Twitter. And I tend to post most of what I'm writing, but also a lot of just my regular ranting and being a part of things like the Crypt the Vote chats or, you know, just being angry about general things that are happening in the world or happy sometimes when it works out. <laughs>
0: Happiness can be hard to come by right now, given all the things that are happening in the world.
1: It can't, but, but small victories like the ACA, like sometimes we just need a day of a small victory like that.
0: Sometimes we just, it's so true. When that happened, I was like, yeah. <laughs> but hey, if you ever want to move to Canada.
1: Oh, I know.
0: It's pretty cool up here. Um, listen, it's been such a pleasure talking with you. I could sit and talk with you for so much more. Um, <laughs> Was there anything else you wanted to let our audience know?
1: Nothing that I can think of. It's been a great pleasure to be on the show, and I'm looking forward to sharing it with people.
0: Awesome. I'm so, so excited that you were here. Elena, you're such a pleasure, and I am going to be emailing you the minute this is done. to be like, Let's write a thing together, because you're just the coolest. Absolutely. Um, thank you so much for your time, and we'll talk soon.
1: All right. Have a great evening.
0: Bye. And there you have it. There's our amazing interview with intersectional feminist and Swiss Army Knife of Digital Media and Publishing, Elena Leary. I don't have much else to say, except I fucking love this interview. She's great, and you should really check out the show notes for her website and all her work. I can't thank her enough for taking the time to sit down with me. It was such an amazing and important interview. If you've got anything to say about this interview, any questions, any follow-up, you can be sure to tweet me and let me know. Thanks for listening to this episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast to shine a bright light on sex and disability. If you like what you hear and want to hear more, read my blogs, or book me to bring disability to you, head over to www.andrewgirza.com. Also, if you're listening to this in iTunes, please rate and review us so more people can find the show. This episode of Disability After Dark is a handmade piece of crippled content created just for you. We record, edit, and produce each piece of this show to bring disability to you in a fresh, honest, and sexy way. Help us create more episodes and support crippled content creation by heading over to our Patreon page. That's www.patreon.com slash and pledging if you can. Your monthly pledge goes towards things like audio equipment, podcast hosting subscriptions, and everything we need to bring this disability centered program to you. By pledging your support, you're showing that disability content has value, means something, and deserves a place in our media landscape. Thank you for supporting this podcast. Copyright Notice This program was created and produced by Andrew Gerza and Crypto Content Creations. Any and all materials including graphics, Music and audio recordings are property of the owner and cannot be used or distributed without express permission.